Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty, and we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast, when John Lennon and Yoko Ono put out some time in New York City back in 1972. There was a second half to the album, which was a live explosion of material recorded between the years of 1969 and 1971. And we are here in a bonus capacity to our Sometime in New York City episodes to discuss this bonus material. Is it is it really an intrinsic part of the album or is it an extra part of the album or why is it there? Does the album not stand on its own two feet? It first came out on CD in 1987 in a lovely big double fat boy, fat box CD case. And then the 2005 CD dropped the live material altogether um, and instead put on Happy Christmas, War is Over and Listen, the Snow is Falling. And then the 2010 CD went back to being a double CD with the live album as well. Why isn't it a standalone release? Or, you know, it doesn't, ref- it, was, it wasn't like, oh, here's, Maybe the the Fillmore stuff is kind of New York-y, but it's not 1972. It's not even contemporaneous with an album whose whole point is being contemporaneous with what's going on. Get it out there. I suppose they'd put out live piece in Toronto, so they kind of had a a noisy live record out already. Maybe they thought they couldn't do another standalone. Um, at the same time, though, you know, sometime in New York City could it is its own kind of concept album it steps out of the concept with the live stuff there a bit what, what i would say is you know the the zappa stuff is new york that's that's the film more that's that's that so that fits in the the unicef benefit there is a little bit of kind of protesty element to what's happening on that side so i suppose to that extent perhaps it fits in with uh, the the general protest vibe of uh, the main album that's as good a case as i think i, I i'm going to get um so let's look at it. The, the, so as, as we've said, the live part of Sometime in New York City is broken down into two halves, a 1969 half recorded at a UNICEF benefit and a 1971 half where John and Yoko crash into the world of Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. So the UNICEF benefit part, um, it's, it's kind of, they didn't know it at the time, but it's an, it's an important gig. It is so important for you know a couple of reasons. It's it's Lennon's last performance in the UK, and uh, it's the last time George and John will appear on stage together. 
And it happens, you know, in November 1969. And even though it's been released and out there, you kind of tend to, it kind of gets lost in the whole 1969 story of the Beatles that right at the end of the year, John and George share the stage in London and perform some songs. It's not immediately what springs to mind when you think of 69 and the Beatles. This, this, this should be more important or should be regarded as being more important. And it, it's the fact that it is bonus material on what was probably John Lennon's least successful, least loved album. So it's, it's hidden away. But yeah, there's a lot going on at the end of 1969 in, in, in Apple, uh, you know, which we've covered in, in detail. And this, this is just another event as part of John and Yoko's peace campaign, their media, I was going to say manipulation, but their sort of brand, creating their brand in the media. This is just one more event. And this isn't even an event at which they were scheduled to play initially. Well, that's the thing. Sorry, it happens in December 69. Mm. Uh, I think I said it happens in November 69. It's announced in November 69. And it's announced um, that they are performing at it, which is news to John and Yoko. So this is this is United Nations benefit concert, and the you know it's 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 been organised. There's a lineup, and they announced that John and Yoko will be there. And of course, they haven't got John to sign anything. You know, he's not he's not teed up to do this. There, there's Apple are involved to some extent in that the the Hot Chocolate Band, who are an Apple artist, will will be there. And that we should point out that that is the Hot Chocolate, the band who became seventies. Disco, hot funk, sexy thing. <laughs> That's the song that comes to mind. I believe in miracles. Uh, everyone's a winner, baby. That hot chocolate. I, I, once again, just to step in for a sec, the parallel history of Apple Records, where you actually realised that they had James Taylor and Hot Chocolate, who were two very big selling acts in the 70s, and they let them walk out the door. They didn't know what to do with them. They did not know what to do with them. Well, they did. They put them on at the Lyceum with John and Yoko. <laughs> which is which is what you wanted. It, it was a good lineup at the Lyceum that night. It was a very good lineup. The Young Rascals, Groovin, uh, Desmond Decker, Shantytown, um, Blue Mink, and Black Velvet, Mel- Melting Pot. <laughs> um, were Blue Mink were they the Melting Pot gang? Yes, was that them? Blue Mink. Ah, okay. And you, you you can't get away with playing Melting Pot on the radio anymore. Uh, I don't think I'll drop. I'll drop a little ten second. Don't. Oh, okay. no, no. I, the, the, I think that my memory serves that there was some local radio DJ in Britain who played Melting Pot in the middle of the day recently, and it's a song. So it, it's it's got very good intentions about all the world's a great big melting pot, but it sort of doesn't really lyrically pass muster in twenty twenty two. Okay, <laughs> you know it's hearts in the right. People place. can go off and explore and find this themselves, but we are in no way. Sending them off to do that? No, not really. Um, so, but it's a good lineup. It's a proper charity benefit show. You think if you'd been there to hear "Give Peace a Chance," the reggae version by Hot Chocolate, "Grooving" mm. by the Rascals, a bit of "Shanty Town" by Desmond Decker, and then suddenly you get John and Yoko coming on stage. That's a weird, yeah, lineup. And you know, you're thinking, well, "Come Together" is kind of still in the charts. It might get a bit of. Bit of bit of come together, so you know it's been a couple of Beatles hits this year. We might get the ballad of John and Yoko because um, you know they might be bringing their 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 pop music chops. It doesn't really play out that it way. It does not play out that way. So th- this is this is called Peace for Christmas, and mm. it's a UNICEF gig. John and Yoko 
agree to take part because they realize this is a happening. This, is, this could be one of their events. Um, I, I'm tempted to say they hijack the event, but they, they agree to participate. Yes. And, and uh, they, they've already done the Rock and Roll Festival in Toronto in September, the famous one where, you know, John puts together a band at the last minute and decides on the plane that he's going to leave the Beatles, blah, blah, blah. And, the, you know, the, he's kind of looking at doing a version of pulling together kind of the same people again and doing the same thing again, right? Yeah, more, more, more or less. It's the same basic lineup plus Billy Preston. That's the lineup that they they settle on. Um, it mm-hmm. changes on the night because a few friends turn up. All this is held at the Lyceum, what was then the Lyceum Ballroom, which is mm. just the Ly- Lyceum now. You, you'll have been to see the Lion King in uh, the Lyceum. I've, I've actually never set foot in the Lyceum. The Lion King has currently been showing there in London in the West End for, I don't know, the last 20 odd years, I guess. It's also the famous venue. Uh, it used to have a retractable roof. And um, it's where Bob Marley's No Woman, No Cry and his famous Live at the Lyceum album was recorded. So it was kind of a, this kind of dance hall music venue um, up until the 80s, I think. Yeah. So my, my fun fact here is the Lyceum was the location where Love Me Do was first played to the public. How so? Tony Calder was a DJ. Mm-hmm. And whereas everybody in Liverpool in their lunch hour went to the cavern, everybody in London, I mean, everybody in London went to the Lyceum. And uh, he, he kind of, you know, spinned, spun some discs. Uh, Spanned. <laughs> and, and, and he was promoting this, and that's the first place it was ever played. So last concert appearance by Lennon, and uh, first place, Love Me Do. It's all connected. It's all connected. That's quite a nice fact in the space of, I guess we're talking the space of seven years, that yeah. amazingly short timeline. So, yes. Well, it was also the home of the Miss World competition. Let's not forget oh. that when we're talking about... Uh, <laughs> talking about class acts. The Miss World contest was staged every year from 1951 to 1968. And the fun fact is 1968 was the last Miss World competition to be televised in black and white and was the first to allow married ladies... Uh, mm. I think it then moved to the Royal Albert Hall because there was the famous Bob Hope incident in 1971, which is a fantastic story on its own. There, there was a documentary about it last year about how um, um, Bob uh, Bob Hope was interrupted. So, so John is planning to bring Eric Clapton, Klaus Foreman, Alan White uh, with them, who were with Toronto, and Billy Preston in the band. So you got John Lennon and Billy Preston together, um, but. Some friends turn up in in kind of a in kind of a preview of nineteen eighties Princess Trust rock and roll buddies all together. Um, it's 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 all the usual crew: Eric Clapton, Delaney, and Bonnie, and a certain Mister um, G Harrison. Mister G Harrison is there, yeah, with a spare guitar for Eric. Yeah. So you got George, Billy Preston, and John all on stage, starting ending the year as they began. Just this is this is what could have been. Well, you know, it is, um, you know, we've all, you know, we're now in the post-get back, um, Peter Jackson era, and the the notion that the four Beatles should just have gotten together on stage and played some gigs, um, and, and it never comes to pass. However, George goes on the road with Delaney and Bonnie, John is rocking up in Toronto and rocking up in the Lyceum, so it's like, 
they all kind of had vibes to play, just not play together, per se, or with Paul. Do you think Paul was a bit annoyed to open his paper the next morning and see that George and John had been on stage at the Lyceum? This is what he wanted to do in January. Well, yeah, spontaneous gigs and, and happenings and things, but there's a difference, isn't there, between let's rehearse some songs, if you look at kind of the amount of rehearsal before they hit the roof <laughs> um, in Savile Row, versus, yeah, we're, we're just going to rock up and play. It's a blues song, off we go. But if, but if Paul and Ringo had been there, hmm. they, they could just have all got together, Delaney, Bonnie, the Beatles, Keith Moon <laughs> jumps up on stage at one point. Uh, you know, the, 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 the trouble is... You know, in late 1968, they're advertising the fact that the Beatles are returning to the stage. So there's an anticipation. This is more like Paul's hit-and-run Wings over the universities tour. Uh, You know, you just kind of turn up, do some songs off your last album or something that you're working on, rock and roll standards, and move on to the next thing. It's it's a kind of guerrilla tactic. Yeah, They never, though, pick up the phone to Paul, you know, because he'd probably just want to maybe stage manage it a little bit. I don't know. You could say that. You're Team Paul. I can't say that. I am Team Paul. I just, well, yeah, like he's, he's, I don't, I'm trying to think, you know, Paul, he obviously likes to put out experimental records and recordings and things and does his fireman and all the rest. Has he ever really done a, a gig that's been not really, you know, Audience friendly, spontaneous, <laughs> you know spontaneous. I mean? Not really done spontaneous. Uh. No, like he might, like even the spontaneous stuff is kind of planned. So I don't, I don't think he's ever done anything that's kind of, uh, um, like John and Yoko. You could argue that they don't have a problem with audience being antagonized, challenging, challenge. Yeah, challenging. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. But you know, you said you said this is this is kind of uh, prefigures the Prince's Trust. But what it what it prefigures is. Rockestra. Ah, Rockestra. of course. Of course. That's exactly where I wasn't going. But now that you mention it. <laughs> you know, that's a very stage managed. Everybody's, you, you know, there's nothing yeah. loose about that. There's nothing. I mean, it's a different thing. But anyway, it, it we're, we're kind of descending. But also the we, same we, thing. We, we are, well, we, we like to go off on tangents. We, we get um, told, told off for uh, our Auntie Paul uh, I'm, I'm not, I, I, good Lord. Um, this, Lennon later refers to the, the, the band that play as the Plastic Ono Supergroup. So it's Lennon, Harrison, Clapton, Delaney Bramlett on guitars, uh, Clapton playing George's Rocky uh, psychedelic Fender Strat Ono herself, uh, Bonnie Bramlett, Alan White and Jim Gordon both on drums, Billy Preston on organ, Klaus Vorman on bass guitar, Bobby Keys on saxophone and Jim Price with uh, his trumpet, Bobby Keys, is he still with the Stones? It's, no, 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 Bobby Keys is long since dead. <laughs> Sorry, whoops. Basically, it was the, uh, it was the, sto- the Stones' horn Snip. section. And as you say, uh, Keith Moon uh, appears at one point, so... Just what you want. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a good gang of people, but they only do two songs. Yeah, but it does seem to be completely... Spontaneous. So John says at one point, I thought it was fantastic. We were doing the show and George and Bonnie and Delaney, Billy Press and all that crowd turned up. They'd just come back from Sweden and George had been playing Invisible Man and Bonnie and Delaney's band. They all turned up and I said, will you come on? And they said, well, what are you going to play? And I said, we're going to do blues or cold turkey, which is three chords. And Eric knew that. And don't worry, Kyoko, which is Yoko's, which is three chords and riff. And I said, once we get on to Yoko's riff, 
just keep hitting it. So this is a seems to be a genuinely spontaneous gathering. Mm. And they play against a big uh, war is over backdrop because the end of 69 is when the war is over um, uh, kind of logo starts appearing around the world two years before the song Happy Christmas War is Over. They are putting up their billboards around the world. And so they do a version of Cold Turkey, which is about seven minutes long. And John says at the start, you can hear him say it on the record, we'd like to do a number. This song's about pain. That That's, you know, sets up the fun off they go into cold turkey and the audience seem to recognize it they're happy to hear that yeah i mean it's a single it's 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 a chart uh single yeah. <laughs> and uh you know it's a seven minute version and it's a fantastic version mm. because it's just it's 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 like the phil Spector sound on stage it's just this massive sound and uh i i have to say i absolutely love this version of cold turkey i think the studio version is a little flat I think Clapton lets that mm. down. Um, but this live version is just sensational. Probably the best live version. Yeah. Um, and then um, uh, Yoko is uh, quite, you know, um, vocal at the end of the song. Well, she's just in a bag, you know, at John's feet. The song ends. Yep. And uh, she shouts, uh, John, I love you. Britain, you killed Hanratty. So again, there's a kind of protest element to what's happening here. Now, the Hanrati story is one that they were intensely involved in for a period of time, John and Yoko. As is their want at that time, they get intensely involved for a little bit, little time. Mm. Uh, you know, so for when, while they're involved, they're very involved, and then they're not involved. <laughs> it, it's a case that, I have to admit, it's another one of these things that if John and Yoko... You know, if I hadn't come across it via reading about John and Yoko, I don't know what I've come across it. James Hanratty was known as the A6 murderer, and he was a British criminal who's one of the last people in Britain to be uh, executed by capital punishment before it was uh, abolished. And he was he was hung in April uh, 1962 after being convicted of the murder of Michael Gregston, um, shot in a car on the A6 road in August 1961. And it became a kind of a famous case in the 60s where people were fighting the cause that he was innocent or he shouldn't have been hung or so yes, on and so forth. Yes, so it became, it really did become a kind of cause celebre and, and people like Ludovic yep. Kennedy, uh, Paul Foote, the journalist, were very strong supporters that Hanratty was innocent, that uh, a lot of the the case really hinged on identification evidence from uh, Michael Gregson's girlfriend, Valerie Story, who was, you know, she was subjected to a rape, she was shot, she was left paralysed. She was the eyewitness and she gave mm. evidence and basically it was her testimony that convicted Hanratty. And his family were very vocal uh, in trying to prove his innocence. And this had a very, very long tail on it. So in 1997, there was an internal police inquiry said he was wrongfully convicted and they referred the, the case to the Court of Appeal. But in 2002, the Court of Appeal ruled that a DNA test conclusively proved his guilt beyond any doubt. Now, his family and supporters are still contesting that, so it's still pressing for a review. But in 2002, that's when the DNA evidence was presented. So it, it basically runs from 1962 when he was hanged to 2002. Yeah, I mean, the DNA evidence... 
obviously wasn't around in 1962, um, but it seems to have proven that he was guilty. Um, but at the time, John and Yoko, you know, were meeting with Hanrati's parents. They were, you know, they, they, they kind of trod this line, John and Yoko, by saying, well, you know, it's it's more to do with, you know, the state shouldn't murder people or there shouldn't be capital punishment. And, you know, they're, they're not, ne- you know, they, they kind of said, well, you know, it's not necessarily about his innocence. It's about you know, capital punishment itself. Yes. So uh, I think from what I, from what I know about the case, it, it, the campaign seemed to reach a peak around the late 60s. So, mm. uh, yes, yeah, short, you know, 10th of December, 1969, John Yoko meets uh, with the parents. Um, uh, there's a campaign. They announced they're going to make a film. Hey, that's what they do. They just make, they make films. They went on the 14th of December. They go to Speaker's Corner, and stage a silent protest. And this is, you know, it's a very John Lennon, Yoko on. It's a very kind of dilettante-ish uh, thing. So yeah. they get in their Rolls Royce, and they drive to Speaker's Corner, and then they get out in their bag and uh, while Hanrati's father addresses the crowd. So they just sit in a bag. I mean, it's, from this remove, it looks ridiculous. It probably looked ridiculous at the time. It probably was ridiculous at the time. I'm sure there are many um, people writing the newspapers of, you know, I can imagine columnists, what are John and Yoko doing supporting this murderer, blah, 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 blah. But I suppose the the argument in favour is the press pay attention because John and Yoko are there. So it's just the very fact that they are there, they get attention. And they do yeah. back a documentary, and which which is called Did Britain Murder Hanratty? And it was released by Apple Films. And if anybody would like to see it, it is... On YouTube, everything's on YouTube. It is there. And yeah, the John and Yoko attention machine means that, for better or for worse, we are still talking about this in 2022. They do a second song, which is a lot longer than the first song. Yes. (laughs) Which is Don't Worry Kyoko. And the version that they end up doing is about 40 minutes long. This is box set gold, Jason. We don't have this. Why don't we have this? Sean... Come on. The whole 40 minutes on a sometime in New York City box set, bring it on. They recorded the whole thing. The whole concert was recorded. Yeah. And it was mixed. So we know there is the, you know, 78, 9-minute version of Cold Turkey. And there's 40 minutes of Don't Worry Kyoko. I can hear people switching off in droves. But that's, uh, that's crying out for a full release, a kind of archival set. You know, there are three edits in the 15-minute mm. version that makes the album, which is a fantastic version. But to think that there's actually a 40-minute version uh, is just... Lennon later describes it as the most fantastic music I've ever heard, 20 years ahead of its time. Uh, he goes on to say, a lot of the audience walked out, but the ones that stayed, they were in a trance. They all just came to the front because it was one of the first real heavy rock shows. It's only to be expected that some people were disappointed and that we only did two long numbers, but we play 1984 music. What I think is interesting from what he describes is that word trance. And, you know, something that I've certainly gotten out of Yoko's music over the years is how, you know, it's still called Krautrock, but there's this very trance-like rock music that is being formulated around about this time. And this is a version of that music. It is. You, you, get, you get a groove going. 
And they, she just kind of rides that groove. And here you've got George Harrison, Eric Clapton, Billy Preston, Klaus Vorman, John Lennon. These are kind of top-flight musicians that are providing this back, backing. And, uh, you know, the 15-minute version, you get that sense, that kind of trance-like uh, feeling mm. to the whole thing. Um, how do you finish a 40-minute song? Well, you just speed up <laughs> until, until you can do no more. So Alan White is the drummer, and he says, while I thought Cold Turkey was good, the other number went on far too long, and it began to sag. Jimmy Gordon, the other drummer from Delaney and Bonnie, and me began to speed up to bring it to an end, but we just got faster and faster, and nobody wanted to stop. It was so fast that our muscles were aching. I was just about thinking, for Christ's sake, stop it, when it just sort of... <laughs> finished and then it did finish and it was all recorded um to four track by jeff emmerich um with john Calander and peter Bowne um engineering and as you say it was kind of mixed um within the week ready to rock yeah it was ready to go and mark lewison uh confirms that the entire thing was uh recorded so you know in addition to a box set for sometime in new york city they could actually just put out a complete, you know, like the complete Monterey, the complete Woodstock. They could put out every performance uh, if they could clear the rights. Did they Did they record the whole night, not just John and Yoko's? Yeah, not just John and Yoko, the whole night. Oh, I thought it was just John and Yoko's. No, no. So Mark Lewison says they oh. confirmed the entire concert, even Emperor Roscoe's Between Acts records. So the compare for the night was Emperor Roscoe. You're a big fan, I know. I'm a huge fan of Emperor Roscoe. I've emailed <laughs> Emperor Roscoe twice saying, we're doing this uh, episode on Live Jam. Would you like to come on and share your... He, he won't return my emails. He won't return my calls. He, he knows a stalker when he, when he gets an email from one. Could, could I just say, Emperor Roscoe is working for Radio Thameside. He should, oh. be, he should be lucky to have a, a stalker, you know? <laughs> Radio Thameside, you know, do you know, maybe uh, someday. Do you, know, Emperor, do you yeah. know Emperor Roscoe? No? I know he's one of the, the kind of the, um, the pirate ship, you know, big, loud, brash kind of... Uh, he's like a British Wolfman Jack kind of over-the-top, larger-than-life type of uh, That's DJ. It. So he was, he was a pirate radio, and then he was uh, with Radio 1 in 1967. Yeah, he was an original Radio 1 guy, wasn't he? But he was the inspiration for the Philip Seymour Hoffman character, The Count, in that film, The Boat That Rocked. Have you seen the film? I've seen that film, and it's horrible. It is, uh, I think. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Yeah, I'm just looking it up. Officially the worst film ever made. It is, it is absolutely, it's grotesque. It's factually incorrect. There's a, there's a great movie that should be made about British pirate radio, but that is not it. And worst of all, it's not funny. It's not funny. And then like the, the big kind of denouement thing at the end, the music they play over it is 1971 Who. And you're like, that is not... Oh, anyway, don't get me going. Anyway, the UNICEF Peace for Christmas gig is a good thing to be celebrated. It is a very good thing to be celebrating. And I know I'm going to be disappointed if and when the box set ever comes out, because they're not going to go with a 40-minute unedited cut. But please put it in the box. And please, if you don't put it in the box, Sean, just send me a copy of that. <laughs> I think I think if we could get it. We got an awful lot of 
raw Yoko in the Plastic Ono Band box on the Blu-rays. So I think um, it's definitely up there, potentially, for the final track listing. Um, but that is only, of course, one half of the live quarter. No, it's one live... It's a quarter... I'm doing the maths wrong. It's one half of the live half... <laughs> So it's, so it's one, one quarter, quarter of, of the, the whole thing, yeah. <laughs> the other quarter of the album, which is the second half of the live half of the album, is um, with Frank Zappa and the Mothers at the Fillmore East in 1971. End of part one. Intermission. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. End of intermission. Part two. And we have talked about Frank Zappa before in the films of Ringo Starr and a few other bits and pieces. And I think we're kind of on the same page, you and me, with Frank Zappa, yeah. which is... <sighs> I've tried. The general vibe. I've tried very hard. Yeah, I just kind of don't get... Everything is undercut by the juvenile lyrics. and the, I thought they were funny when I was 13 or 14. I thought Frank Zappa was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was about 14 or 15 when his book came out and I remember coming across a copy of it and thinking, yeah, this is fantastic. It was about late 80s, the Frank Zappa book. And he seemed, you know, and I don't deny he was a very clever guy and he, um, you know, artistically had a vision and he went for it and all the rest. But sometimes it's a bit tiresome, personally speaking. And yeah, the juvenilia, I think, gets in the way of the good stuff. Yeah. He's not he's not somebody I'd want to go for a drink with. No, certainly not now. So they were doing a set of performances at the Fillmore East in New York City and the whole John and Yoko rocking up with the mothers, it's a very spontaneous thing. It just happens in a day. Seems to be. Seems to be. So Lennon and Zappa I think had never met up to this point. Lennon had talked about him, so he mentions him in the uh, uh, Jan Wenner uh, Rolling Stone interview, mm. and he seems very sort of ambivalent about Zappa. So he, he sort of, at one point, he, he sort of says, uh, you know, I know what Zappa's going through. I'm just coming out of it now. I've just been at school again. I have a teacher's taking me off. And this is where Zappa's getting a lot of criticism. And then he says, I admire Zappa a bit, but he's a intellectual so mm. lennon is, is in one of his cyclical moods where he's being very disparaging of of in the intellectual approach to rock and there's no more intellectual approach to rock than frank 
Zappa. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it seems to me, reading between the lines, Lenin likes Zappa's way of getting attention, maybe likes his demeanour, mm. um, might be a bit threatened by him, by the kind of the intellectual stuff he would often write off, kind of pseudo-intellectualism, um, if he felt it was kind of... Uh, you know, kind of an exclusive type of intellectualism, you know. And um, so he's kind of walking a tightrope, really. Yes, I think I, I think he seems to blow hot and cold about Zappa. Mm. Um, but the meeting, when, when they do meet in 1971, Zappa is at, will, will subsequently be at, um, we, we mentioned in the, the main episode that he turns up at the uh, Everson uh, art exhibition that Yoko mm-hmm. does, but the, but the initial meeting Zappa describes this. Uh, this is him speaking in 1984, and he says, "A journalist in New York City woke me up, knocked on the door, and is standing there with the tape recorder and goes, Frank, I'd like to introduce you to John Lennon.' You know, waiting for me to gasp and fall on the floor. And I said, "Well, okay, come in." And we sat around and talked. And I think the first thing he said to me was, "You're not as ugly as I thought you would be." So anyway. I thought he had a pretty good sense of humour, so I invited him to come down and jam with us at the Fillmore East. We had already booked in a recording truck because we were making live at the Fillmore album at the time. So this seems to be completely yeah. spontaneous. And I saw in a TV interview where he's basically recounting the same story. And he says to the interviewer, you know, he says jokingly to the interviewer, he's wrong. I'm very ugly. I'm one of the ugliest men alive. Just look at me. You know, in that sort of very laconic... I mean, it... For all my complaining about Frank Zappa, it's hard not to. He he, he does have a charisma about him. You got to give him that, you know. He he does have a a a, a certain um, charisma. So the journalist is Howard Smith, and he had interviewed Lennon, and then whenever Lennon heard that uh, Zappa was the next interviewee, he said, "You know, can I can I come along?" So there is there is some suggestion that Andy Warhol is involved in this in some way that he is kind of mm. setting this up. Um, uh, you know, Andy Warhol, little elastic sometimes with the, the actuality, <laughs> but uh, he didn't like Zappa at all. And there's a very weird interview from 1993, kind of weird TV show that Warhol had uh, in New York mm-hmm. in, the, in the 80s. And he interviews Zappa. His entry in his diary uh, for June 16th, 1983, is Frank Zappa came to be interviewed for our TV show. And I think that after the interview, I hated Zappa even more than when it started. I remember when he was so mean to us when the Mothers of Invention played with the Velvet Underground. I hated him then, and I still don't like him. Yeah. Andy Warhol diaries are famously kind of quite caustic and yeah. bitchy and depressing and all the rest. Um, but he also he also talks how he was very strange about his daughter. Frank was being very strange about his daughter, Moon Unit Zappa. And, uh, you know, Andy writes, I said how great she was. And he said, listen, I created her. I invented her. Like, she's nothing. It's all me. And I mean, if it my daughter, I'd be saying, gee, she's so smart. It was peculiar. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're not really... Um, uh, Andy Warhol had a, a good sense of play, in, I think. But I think they're, you know, they're, they're too similar. They're two they're two artists that just don't gel. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, the John and Yoko appearance is an encore. So um, they're playing these sets at the Fillmore. I think they're doing two gigs a night, and it's the end of the second night. And um, th- they are brought on, and the crowd are happy. Why would you not be? Why would you not be? Why would you not be happy? So uh, the other interesting aspect of this is that Yoko 
at fairly short notice, arranges for the gig to be filmed. And yeah. if you go onto YouTube, as always, there is some footage there. And it's, it's largely maybe one or two fixed camera yes. shots sort of from high up, maybe in a balcony or a gallery or something. And, you know, it's interesting. And it gives you a sense of what the concert was actually like on the night. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's an encore. And um, there's a guy called Richard Emmett, uh, who was a copyist uh, for Zappa, a music copyist, and a very long, rambling article for the Portland Songwriters Association newsletter in 2003, to which I am a subscriber. No, I'm not a subscriber. Um, <laughs> okay. he, he talks about the kind of build-up before they go on stage, uh, as recounted by Zappa. So this is not a first-hand account. And he says, Frank once described an encounter he'd had with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. I don't remember the occasion, but for some reason they were about to go on stage together in New York. According to Frank, Yoko was talking incessantly in a high-pitched voice and John was getting more and more exasperated with her. Finally, John shouts at her, shut up, you little Jap, and Yoko socked him in the face. Ah, those golden days of peace and love. Frank's reaction, from then on, John was okay in my book. That's a weird... Is that real? It's on the internet. It was in the, it was in the Portland Songwriters Association newsletter in 2003. The Portland Songwriters Association newsletter would not publish this if it was not true. <laughs> God, it sounds ugly. Um, Frank Zappa was an ugly I, man. Well, it's, yeah, it's all a bit ugly. Uh, it is worth just, in terms of getting the timeline right, their appearance is on the 6th of June, 1971. So this is not... They haven't made their permanent move to New York yet because they go back and they, they leave at the end of August 71. Um, so if we're trying to get our timeline all together, they are not New York John and Yoko yet. They're not native say. New Yorkers, no. They, no. As the song says, no, because they're back protesting in the UK in, in, in August 71 and then and then they move back at the end of the month. So they're, they're a few weeks away from their... Um, never setting foot in the UK uh, era ever again. Um, but they're obviously scouting around New York and getting uh, comfortable with New York. And uh, depending on whether you talk to um, the estate of John Lennon or the estate of Frank Zappa, they either play three songs or um, six songs. <laughs> but for the sake of yes. some time in New York City... Um, well, it, it's listed as four songs on the eventual "Sometime in New York City" album. It's just, it's just a number, Jason. Yes, that's that's yes. <laughs> um, uh, the first thing they play is "Well, Baby, Please Don't Go," which John kind of introduces very casually as, "Oh, I haven't played this since the Cavern," and you know the 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 audience might be thinking there's a little bit of Beatle magic about to yeah. to happen. Um, but then they launch into Well Baby Please Don't Go Yeah Which Is a fantastic song And it's a fantastic performance And I'm here to say This might be my favourite Ever Lennon vocal performance I'm sorry fans of Yes it is And <laughs> This Boy And But This is just Fantastic It is very good It is I think It, it, it certainly sounds great Um Maybe even better than the seventy-two live performances that we have. Oh yeah, recorded. It's a, it's a great recording, and the actual. If you listen to just the very first second or two of the track, it does sound a little bit like Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club yes. Band. Yes, there's a little kind of junk, junk, junk on the guitar. It just sounds a smidgen like it, which 
that would have been a fun thing for him to sing. The Mothers uh, are just a sensational band. Yes. And Zappa is an amazing guitar player. And it all just comes together on this track. And I think, you know, that there's a lot of sneering from the Zappa camp about Yoko's screaming and Yoko's mm. vocalizations at this time. But I think it works. Zappa, uh, he, you know, was either highly organized or there was improvisatory moments to his music. And I think, you know, that kind of teetering on chaos type vibe that sometimes comes from some of his music works well with Yoko. This is, this is, this is a perfect example of what her, her bringing something to the table which is not overpowering everybody else. And it, it does uh, add to the performance. So John, John says, as you say, this is a song I haven't played since my Liverpool days. But that's not strictly true because there are studio versions of this song. Uh, from the Imagine mm. Sessions, uh, 11th of February and the 16th of February, he recorded at Tittenhurst. Um, you know, several takes. This comes out on 1998, the John Lennon anthology. You can hear the studio version. Yeah, that's right. So he obviously has it in his wheelhouse again. He's obviously brought him back into the into his mind. Well, BB Please Don't Go was written by Walter Ward, who was a vocalist with a group called The Olympics. So they had a hit in 1958 with a song called Western Movies, which got to number eight. And Well was the B-side to that. And it is it is another one of these lovely things that the Beatles were obviously record collectors, record lovers. They listened to the B-sides. They put the songs that they liked into their mental musical Rolodex. And this was one this of This is them. exactly the kind of thing the Beatles were doing in 1958. They were searching mm. for odd B-sides that other bands in Liverpool wouldn't have in their arsenal. Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not a song that he's suddenly reaching back ten years. He's he's literally reaching back four months uh, to, to when he played this. And uh, I th- this is a song that should have been on Imagine. Should it? I don't want to be a soldier. That's a terrible song. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. You know what I mean? What is, <laughs> I, you know, it's 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 just one of those big spectry production numbers that you can't make out the lyrics, and it just goes on and on and on. Whereas this is a great rock and roll number, and he. He, he recorded a couple of versions of it, uh, you know, he, over two days. He clearly was doing it for something. Yeah. You know? And it's a, it's a great song, and it evolves into what's then called on the album Jam Rag. Yes. What does that mean, Jason? Uh, well, a Jam Rag, um, do, do we really have to tell people? No, I think people can work that out. It is a euphemism for a sanitary product. And um, the... Uh, you know, again, Yoko's doing her thing. And then the, the next track, so to speak, because that comes to an end, yep. is uh, Scumbag, which is a bit of a cheery sing-along, really. Frank is exhorting the crowd to, to join in. Baby, well, Baby, Please Don't Go is four minutes. Jam Rag, five minutes, 36. Scumbag, four minutes, 27. I. Is that with my Northern mm. Irish accent? Is that, the way, I, is that the way you say that? I. I, I, I you. I, 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 I think it's just to do with Yoko's noise, uh, but it's also the chemical element for gold, which is important right. to remember, AU. There, you, there go. you go. So this is eight minutes, and this is very much one of those, there's no riff, there's just noise and mm. screaming, and mm. <laughs> I love that. It, 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 it's, it's, uh, what is interesting is that at the start of Ow. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I, 
I. <laughs> <laughs> At the start of it, Frank sort of says, good night, everybody. We'll see you next time. And Yoko's only getting started. It's only... She's just, yeah, the night is, the night is but a pop. Yeah, like she's, she's, she's then doing her half of the gig. So, you know, the, the band are just kind of, at least it wasn't a whole 40 minutes worth no. um, of, of seeing where it goes. But yeah, it, it's, it's Yoko doing her thing. Yeah, so, and thank you and good night. And that's, and that's it. It's very good. I, I enjoy this. I think, well, I say, well, Baby Please Don't Go is one of my favourite Lennon uh, performances. But there is the fallout as a result of the tapes, because the gentleman's agreement, I believe, is that um, they knew, everybody knew this was being recorded professionally, and the plan would be that John could do with the, the collaboration what he liked, and Frank could do with the collaboration what he liked. So, you know, the the, the kind of the, you know, it's roughly half an hour of music that they make together, um, Frank and the mothers and John and Yoko. And um, Zappa gives Lennon a copy of the master tapes for him to, you know, do what he wants. Yeah. So Frank puts out an album, Fillmore East, June 1971, two months after the show, but there's none of the uh, John and Yoko performances on it. So as you say, John has a copy of the master tape and he starts doing that thing that John does, which is he starts mixing it, and the first thing he does, he puts some reverb on his voice. Mm-hmm. And this is why I'm saying it's interesting to compare the YouTube video footage, the filmed uh, footage, with what's on both John's mix and then Zappa subsequently puts out a mix. But um, you can hear the reverb that John is applying. He gets Klaus Wurman in to overdub mm-hmm. a new bass track. And most significantly, he takes out the backing vocals from Flo and Eddie, who are members of Zappa's band. Yes. Yeah, he does. And then, even more controversially, is writing credits, because he gives John and Yoko all the writing and publishing. And there's interviews, even into the 80s after John dies, where Zappa is saying, yes, we had a nice time. And then it all went south, because they published the music and claimed that they'd written it themselves, even though parts of Jamrag had bits of the Zappa track King Kong yeah. mixed in with it. That was the that was kind of Zappa's complaint. Yeah. So so th- they never really sorted that out. No, so so what happens is uh if you have the vinyl copy of uh Sometime in New York City and you take the inner sleeve out for the second album, it's basically Zappa's album cover. It says, mm. you know, Mothers, Fillmore and then in black it's a kind of belt-tip pen scroll that Zappa has designed and writing on the back. So what um, Lennon does is he gets a red pen and he designs something over the top of Zappa's album cover. But he, but as you say, yes, he basically claims copyright on the entire jam. Uh, he removes Zappa's name. Uh, Walter Ward gets a credit for, well, baby, please don't go. But everything else is a kind of John and Yoko uh, uh, approach. And Zappa would say that his attempts to contact Lennon about this, you know, he doesn't get a response. And he comments in 1988, he says, now the horrible part of the story, during our time on stage, a number of pieces were improvised, but a number of pieces that were played were absolutely written compositions that had already been on other albums, namely a song of mine called King Kong. The deal I made with John and Yoko was that we were both to have access to the tapes and could deploy them any way we wanted. Um, I talked to Yoko 
last year, which would be 1987. And I said, by the way, you remember that jam rag? And she said, well, we have a problem with Capitol Records. We're suing them, you know. I can't imagine that album really sold a lot anyway. It's the principle. The other thing that was kind of sad was there's a song on there called Scumbag, but the way they mixed it, you can't hear what Mark and Howard, this is uh, Flo and Eddie, the backing singers, are singing. There's a reason for that. They're singing, now Yoko's in the scumbag. We're putting Yoko in a scumbag. So John just mixes out the uh, offending Well, if you watch the footage... That is what they do. They put Yoko in a bag and Yoko screams and sings from inside the bag while Flo and Eddie um, are singing about her. Now, if we fast forward to March 2022 and an 8-CD box set comes out called The Mother's 1971 Box Set, which, although it uh, finishes with their version of I Want to Hold Your Hand, in the middle of this box set uh, on CD6 is a brand new mix of all of this music officially for the first time, I think, on a Zappa album, although part of it had originally been on Playground Psychotics in 1992 Zappa release. But this Mother's 1971 box set, which is available in all your regular streaming places, because I have not bought it, um, it recontextualizes or reorders the tracks. So what we know on Sometime in New York City as being well, followed by Jamrag, followed by Scumbag, followed by O is on the Mother's 1971 box set is now um, six songs. Uh, well, which is nine minutes, including kind of the first bit of Jamrag. And then um, they've split Jamrag into Say Please, which is one and a half minutes of Yoko screaming and i've looked this up the credits on this track are lennon ono zappa and then uh there's one minute of king kong which is a zappa composition and then there's another three minutes of a track that they've called awk because that's the noise yoko is making a a a w k and that's credited to lennon ono zappa as well so they've broken jamrag into these three separate songs with these three writing credits which is interesting and then scumbag is the version with Flo and eddie mixed in so they're talking about all the things that they're putting into the scumbag and that is actually uh credited to lennon ono uh kaylin and uh zappa so the four of them get a writing credit and then they've given a, a, a much more easy to pronounce title although it's much more snarky and cynical which is a Small Eternity with Yoko Ono. Yes. And they've edited out Zappa saying goodnight at the start. So it's just Yoko just comes in uh, at the start and starts doing her thing. And that is credited to Lennon and Ono. There's no Zappa credit on that. What I would say is it is well worth seeking out this version on streaming or wherever you get your music because I think it is mixed better. Lennon's vocals are up front and centre. It's nice and clear and, you know, give it up for the mothers. They were a rockin' band at the time. There's a great sound on that. They were a great band and, yeah, I I, I mean, whatever you please do not buy the 8-disc uh, box set, but uh, go and stream... <laughs> Disc 6, and it is very good, and uh, it's made from the master tape that Zappa gave to Lennon, because yes. they lost Zappa, serves him right, lost the uh, <laughs> master tape, and they had to go back and, and say to Yoko in 2021, would you uh, provide the Zappa estate? So would the Lennon estate provide the Zappa estate? 
with a copy, and they did. And I think, you know, fair play to Yoko, and I'm sure she's not in any way offended by the, the title being changed to A Small Eternity with Yoko <laughs> A Small Eternity with Yoko Ono. It's, um, yeah, but it does sound great, and I think it's the definitive version. And again, it kind of makes you think, oh, okay, this is what a sometime in New York City box set could sound like yeah. if this gig could sound this good with these people. I think so. Um, it's really great. Yeah. Do you know Do you know about Flo and Eddie? I thought I would say you were a fan of Flo and Eddie, no? Uh, well, the Turtles, and they uh, they were in the Turtles, and then they get roped into this early 70s version of The Mothers, and they're very sort of high pop conceptualists. Yeah, so um, Happy Together, big hit single, uh, knocks, yeah. knocks Penny Lane yep. off the number one spot in 1967. Chip Douglas was their bass player. Yes, and he went off to be an essential person for the Monkees, particularly for their headquarters album. And Turtle Soup by the Turtles, 1969, produced by... Ooh. Oh, I thought, I thought, I thought you were going to say it. I thought you were going to say it. It's in the notes. It's in the notes. <laughs> oh, I do all this research. <laughs> Who's it produced by? Ray Davis. Oh, is it? Yeah. It's his only, uh, it's, it's only um, production work for any other band. That's bizarre. You see? I haven't. I, I, I have a little note there saying, side notes for Jason Chip Douglas was the bass player of the Turtles until Mike Nesmith interviewed special monkeys reference for you and then a Ray Davis I, reference I think for I, you. I'm obviously looking at, at, at version 12 of the notes, oh. not version 15. I do apologise. Yeah, because you, 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 you've, skipped, you've skipped all the stuff about Flo and Eddie and yeah, you're working off old notes. The, thing, the, one thing, the one thing I'll tell you is many years ago I bought a big monkeys box set uh, for Record Store Day. Just the one? And just the one. And uh, I went back the following year for Record Store Day and the guy behind the counter was like, oh, are you, are you not going to buy the, the Turtles box set that's out this year? And I thought, yeah, my role isn't just to buy animal-related themed box sets. But, you know, it did cross my mind at the time, I have to admit, you know. The, the Turtles are very good, but even better, if you can find it, is the Phosphorescent Leech, which is uh, their, their solo album. Their <laughs> first, I think, first post-Turtles solo album. I'm a yep. bit hazy on the, the timeline, but they have one fantastic album that you should... I don't know that it's on streaming services. If it is, we'll, we'll put up a link. I can't remember, is it Flo or Eddie? I think it's Flo. But one of them went off and became legally qualified and kind of pursued, uh, you know, is very vocal in copyright law. It's and a fine uh, career. Yeah, and, and um, musicians' rights and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, they were along with Zappa, were very kind of prescient about owning copyrights and owning songwriting um, from the from the get-go. We did talk about them on our 1974 episode. They were they had a radio show, uh, and Ringo and Harry Nilsson pitched up very drunk, um, mm. with, you know, with about 10 minutes to go, and they overran, and uh, everybody was fired. <laughs> Why? Why would you do that? Would you not be delighted that they were being part of your yeah, show? Yeah, but they were completely drunk and swearing, and uh, the owners of the station... I find that hard to believe. The owners Harry of the station Nielsen weren't and... impressed. But Flo and Eddie also... Two songs they appear in backing vocals. My first single I ever bought... No, it's not, actually. Uh, Get It On uh, <laughs> by uh, T-Rex. Oh, by T-Rex. And uh, somebody called Bruce Springsteen. What Bruce Springsteen song are they on? Hungry Heart. Really? Yeah. My gosh. So I, I even even they, I'm learning. So yeah. So they have. Yeah, I'm just looking here at my notes. 
the fluorescent leech and Eddie, which was recorded with the mothers after Frank fell off stage at the Rainbow in London. If you remember, yes. if you remember that story, he was pushed off by a crazed, by a crazed fan, a crazed boyfriend into, a, into I think a a fourteen foot orchestra pit, and he broke his leg. Yeah. So, um, and do you know what song he was playing uh, just before he fell off the stage? Uh, I want to hold your hand, which is the track at the end of the current box set. There you go. There you go. It's all connected. <sighs> it's all connected. So. I think we have discussed an awful lot of aspects of some time in New York City. So I think we can only kind of wrap it up by saying this is worthy of a box set. It, if there's a box set on the shelves, which it really we're is. kind of assuming there is, um, with 2022 mixes and all the rest, you know, there's the album itself, which could do a nice sonic polish on that. Yep. There's all this live material where... We know there's extended versions. There's a CD there in the Lyceum alone. There's a CD in an expanded and remixed um, uh, Fillmore gig. There's We know there's rock and roll outtakes and all that from the sessions as well. There's alternate versions. There's all the stuff they did with Elephant's Memory. You could even argue for the Elephant's Memory solo album could go in there. And, rehearsal yeah, rehearsal tapes for the one-to-one gig and two full performances yeah. from one-to-one. It's, it's potentially... The biggest box set. Good. It's, no, well, it's potentially could be a superb box set because it's well, such I mean, a creative period. You know, whether you whether you like the music, whether you like the direction, it is such an intense period of creativity. It's crying out for a box set. Well, you know, I think sometimes the best box sets uh, will, you know, make an album that perhaps wasn't a top tier album. Back up to the top tier, you know, yeah. like everyone said about the Red Rose Speedway box set. But um, the <laughs> sometime in New York City, through the retrospectoscope, you can say, oh, actually, that is what it is. It's a record about sometime in New York City. And it's the kind of the pinnacle of his diary music in some ways, him and Yoko. And it could get recontextualized and recelebrated through the lens of a decent box set. Well, as we sit here recording, not long to go to get it out for its 50th anniversary year. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, hope springs a turn. Perhaps if we, we let Sean know we're big fans and you just give us a kind of... And we'll buy it in Bitcoin. Yeah, that might get we'll buy it in Bitcoin. Yeah, we'll buy it in Bitcoin. Um, but there you go. What do you think, everybody? I think uh, we've made the case for us sometime in New York City. Box said we want to send you back to the records anyway and go dig out the Zappa mix of the film work um, performances because they're well worth listening to. Um, but let us know in all the usual places on Twitter at BeatlesPod, um, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, www.nothingisrealpod.com, which has links to everything, including a big list of all our ACAST Plus episodes. And thank you to all our subscribers and supporters. Um, for keeping with us uh, with the A-Class Post episodes. More stuff coming your way. Um, But uh, do get in touch and talk about this album and what do you think? But for now, my name is Jason Carty. I'm Jason Carty. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening.
a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.